come to a passage this morning that is difficult for a variety of reasons. And sometimes it is easy for us to focus on the difficulties of the passage in terms of its interpretation, in terms of uh, the conflict over responding to such a passage in our present world, particularly in our context where we live and work today. But what I want us to do is to make sure that we pay attention to the larger context and see what this passage is doing as it develops the story of Abraham, what God is doing in fulfilling his promises, and what that then means for us today. We see in the previous chapter that God had repeated, at the beginning of the chapter rather, of chapter 18, God had repeated his promise that they were going to have a son. We are going to now have a bit of an interlude in which there is someone else who is having children, in which there is a description of God's judgment, in which in chapter uh, 20 there is going to be a repeat of Abraham's earlier wavering with regard to God's promise, all of, things, all of these things are potentially threats in some way to what God is doing in the life of Abraham. But we see also in this passage that God is working through Abraham to produce in him the sort of character that honors God. We see in the second half of chapter 18, Abraham interceding for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, probably specifically with his nephew Lot in mind, but also the fact that these are people that he rescued from the Battle of the Kings back in chapter 15. We're going to see some of the reasons for God's judgment in chapter 19, and we're going to see the shameful end that Lot comes to, and all of these things, I think, provide valuable lessons for us. And so, uh, as we begin... There's a couple of questions that I wanted the, the kids and all of us, for that matter, to think about. One would be, uh, what is the similarity between Abraham and Christ in what he does in chapter 18? The second question is, what was the specific sin that God punished Sodom and Gomorrah for in chapter 19? And then the last question is, how does the children, how do the children who are born at the end of chapter 19 pose a threat to God's people later on in Israel's history? And I think these three things uh, will help us to think about some of the key issues that are going on in the text. Notice the emphasis on righteousness especially in verse 19 of chapter 18. I have chosen Abraham so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Think back, for example, to um, chapter 15 where it says, Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
And so Abraham's character is described as righteous before the Lord in connection with his faith demonstrated by actions. And God wants Abraham to continue in those things as part of the fulfillment of the promises that he has made. And so there's sort of this deliberation among the Godhead, should I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And I think we should understand this in this way. Should I give Abraham an opportunity to demonstrate righteousness and to understand my righteousness better in the context of the judgment that I'm about to bring on these cities, on this specific region? Verse 20 is another verse that is puzzling. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. A lot of times, and I think however many times I've read this passage, I've thought about the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah as, you know, their sin is made known and God is now aware of their sin, and so God comes to punish their sin. But other places where this word is used, it's used in a sense of someone who is being oppressed or treated unjustly or sinned against cries out to God for help. How then do we understand that in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah? We'll talk when we get to chapter 19 about what the specific sin was, but here I want us to think about the fact that sin is often portrayed as glamorous and wonderful and the fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams. And why is that? If you go fishing with a bare hook, you don't catch anything, right? You put something on there that the fish wants, you put something in the trap that the rat wants, you put out things that attract the deer or whatever else it is that you're hunting or trying to catch, then the temptation, the, uh, the progress into sin is successful. We don't think about the after effects of sin. There are people who live lives that are very immoral. They go from one person to the next instead of committing to marriage and staying with that person for the duration of their lives and being faithful to that one person, following the pattern that God laid out with Adam and Eve. They are with many people and unfaithful to many people. And what often, though not always, happens in those cases is a string of heartbreaks, sometimes diseases, certainly impacts on finances, all of these other sorts of things, and all of those consequences, the dark side of the sin of pursuing whoever you want, whenever you want, is what we don't think about. And I think in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are people who are being sinned against, as well as those who are doing the sinning, which is not to say any of them are without sin, but in many circumstances, if not all circumstances, there is someone who is primarily responsible for the sin, and there is someone who is also a sinner who sins, but is not the one who's mainly responsible for the sin in that specific instance. And so the specific sins that are being committed are quite likely, based on what we see in the text, being committed 
against some people who are unwilling for those sins to be committed toward them. Those people are crying out, and God hears their cry and says, that sort of sin demands punishment. Now, what does that mean then? Because the entire city is swept away in God's punishment. And that's something that we'll talk about as we proceed through the chapter. But, but when it says God's going to come down and see if the outcry is correct, then sometimes we might think, well, you know, it's sort of like God couldn't quite see what was happening. God couldn't quite hear what was happening. Rather, we should understand this as God being described in human terms. If someone says, here is something that has happened that is wrong. I had this happen in, in my class at school this week. Uh, somebody was murmuring something, and I, I went and asked the student, what did you say? Because if what he was saying was true, it was something that would get the person sitting next to him in trouble. So I went and talked to him, I said, and he said, oh, I was just joking. I went, you know, I wasn't serious. I was like, well, let's not joke about those sorts of things so that you don't get in trouble and this other person doesn't get in trouble. We go and investigate the circumstances that are going on in order to assess what the proper response would be. God is being described in those terms because it's something that we can relate to, not because he actually had to come down from heaven to see what was going on, but rather he has come down to be with his servant and he is going to go over and observe what's going on and then he is going to act accordingly and appropriately. Now the men, the angels that are with the Lord, go towards Sodom and Abraham is standing before the Lord. Abraham ventures to ask God a series of questions. And Abraham's questions center upon this idea that there are those who are righteous, who honor God, who do not deserve punishment along with the wicked, even though they may be surrounded by those who are wicked. And as I said a moment ago, Abraham, it was actually chapter 14, not chapter 15. Abraham in chapter 14 had gone and delivered his nephew Lot and the people of Sodom after they had been defeated in battle. And so I think Abraham was potentially hoping that some of those people had seen God's deliverance, that perhaps Lot had had a testimony to some of those people, and some of them had come to follow the Lord. And so Abraham is now pleading with God, if there are those who have come to trust in you, will you spare them even though you destroy the city, or will you spare the city entirely on their behalf? And so he starts with a larger number, 50 people. And the reason that he gives for asking God this series of questions is this. God would not treat the righteous and the wicked alike. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And that, I think, sets the tone for the rest of this. God dealing justly with sinners, punishing them for their sin. God dealing justly with Lot, sparing him for the sake of Abraham and his connection with the promises that God has made to Abraham. Despite the horrible circumstances of this chapter. So Abraham says 50. God says, yes, I'll spare it for the sake of 50. 45? Yes. 40? Yes. 
30? Yes. And notice Abraham's posture becomes more and more tentative because I don't think it is that he is worried that God is just going to snap if he says one more number because that's not God's character. But rather, in connection with God's desire for Abraham to teach righteousness, Abraham is, I think we could say, exploring the boundaries of God's mercy in contrast or in connection with God's justice. What if there were only 20? And then finally, very tentatively, don't be angry, I shall speak only this once. What if there are only 10? I will not destroy it on account of the 10. Then the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. So the question I asked a few moments ago, what is the parallel between Abraham's intercession and Jesus' intercession? Abraham interceded for those who were sinners by birth and by choice, including his nephew Lot. Jesus does the same for his people who now have been declared righteous in him because of the the blood that he shed, the things we sang about in the song right before the sermon. I think in Abraham's intercession, there is an anticipation of Moses' intercession for the people of Israel, even in the face of their sin, of Christ's intercession for us, even in the face of our sin. And so there is both a foreshadowing and a pattern of this idea that God's mercy is extended to people in connection with people faithfully coming before God on behalf of those who do not deserve God's mercy. So by way of application, do you intercede for other people? Here's this person that I know is sinning. Lord, spare them. Lord, bring them to repentance. Lord, help them. We can become hypocritical in our response to sin in such a way that we are blind to our own sin, angry at the sins, to, uh, sins of others, and as a result, we fail to confess our sins and intercede for the sins of others. And this passage, this pattern, sets an example for us that we ought to have an awareness of sin, but that ought to drive us toward intercession and toward seeking God more than toward anger and desiring in a vengeful sort of way for those sins to be punished. That being said, there is sin, and sin demands a consequence. And because God is the righteous judge, sin and the commitment of it has sort of an expiration date, so to speak. Remember what God said to Abraham. Four generations, your people will be in a land not their own. They will be slaves, and then I will free them with a mighty hand, and bring judgment on the nation that has oppressed them in this way. I think we're going to see in chapter 19 a foreshadowing of God's deliverance of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt, but in a much smaller scale, because when God comes down to the city of Sodom, specifically uh, through the angels that represent him, he's not going to find 50 righteous. He's not going to find 30. He's not going to find 10. The New Testament speaks of Lot as one who was plagued in his righteous soul. And there are two possibilities of that. One is that Lot was plagued in his righteous soul in contrast to the exceeding wickedness of the people around him. Lot was righteous as compared to them. The other one was that Lot genuinely believed in God 
but came very close to suffering consequences along with the rest of the wicked because of the sinful and foolish choices that he had made. The angels come down to Sodom. Lot is sitting in the gate. What's the significance of this? It's not um, that he was sitting in the gate like a guard. It probably has to do with the fact that the people who were gathered at the gate of the city were those who decided uh, cases of justice in the city, those who um, were leading people of the city. So what did this mean about Lot's progression? He went to a place that seemed to offer security because it was a place that was well watered for his flocks and his herds. By the time we come to chapter 14, he's in the city as one who is a part of the city such that he gets captured and dragged away into captivity by the kings in their battle. And, and Abraham comes and delivers him. Now he seems that he has come to a, a place of leadership in the city, potentially. What does that tell us about Lot? Perhaps he justified it in his mind from the perspective of, connected with the outcry of the city before God, there are people who are being treated wrongly in this city, which is full of wickedness, and I can make a difference, and I can change, sort of by working in the system from within it. One of the dangers of that sort of thinking is that particularly when you are the only person who is following God in a particular contract context, the pull is going to be very strong for you to behave exactly like those around you. And we're going to see as we go through the chapter that Lot has absorbed and become accustomed to some of the wrong and wicked thinking of the people of the city. And so even though his motives may have been right in the beginning, and this chapter doesn't comment on his motives, this is just thinking out loud about what may be going on here, the end result is he has come to behave like the people of the city, he has come to love the city far more than he ought, and he is almost punished along with the city because the angels are going to have to drag him away, kicking and screaming from his place that he has come to love because of its wealth, because of all that it has to offer, despite the great wickedness of the place. He sees the angels coming to Sodom. Come to your servant's house, spend the night, wash your feet, they may, then you may rise early and go on your way. No, but we shall spend the night in the square. They, he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And one of the commentaries noted the contrast between Abraham's hospitality and that of Lot. Abraham was not quite as well, or Lot was not quite as well prepared as Abraham, uh, such that all he had was unleavened bread. And so even though Lot is striving to show hospitality as he ought, he is caught off guard by the appearance of the angels. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, young and old, all the people from every quarter. They called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Literally, the phrase is that we may know them. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you. And do to them whatever you like, only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. 
But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in like an alien and already is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. This is a kind of a horrifying section of this passage. God created our bodies to be used properly in the context of marriage. These people said, God has a design for marriage, and we're going to ignore it. Instead of saying that a family is a husband and a wife committed to one another for life in the sight of God, they have said we can have, specifically in this context, men living with men and behaving in sinful ways that God describes as immorality, Instead of, as Lot is doing, showing hospitality to the people who are coming into the city, they instead want to take advantage of them and do sinful acts to them, and this dishonors God. And people will say, well, the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was their lack of hospitality. Lot invites them into his house. These people are rude to them. This goes far beyond just being rude to people. They want to take the angels, do whatever they want to them, Take advantage of them. And this probably is connected with why the outcry of the city is great. There are people who are behaving in wicked ways toward other people. And then those victims are crying to God, who is going to help me? People have also said that this has nothing to do with today. Because in this context, clearly there are people who are trying to take advantage of other people without their consent. But as long as both people are okay with this sort of relationship, then it's just fine. But the sin that is described here as sin is described as a progression of turning away from God in Romans chapter 1. It is described as something that is unnatural according to other passages in the Bible. It was something that was condemned in the law. And while the law does not apply today, and while there are people who consent willingly to the sort of activity that is described in this passage, that doesn't mean that God is okay with it. How do we know? And then there are other people who will say, well, they didn't want to do what the passage says they wanted to do. They just wanted to get to know them better as guests, which is a preposterous thing. Because the word that's used here is used of the relationship between Adam and Eve in the context of their marriage. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and the result was a child. So clearly, there is biblical basis for this word being translated the way that the Nazbe and other translations render it. We also know that it's not just, we want you to be acquainted with them, because Lot says, I have two daughters, you can... Do what you want to do with them, only don't do it to these people who are visiting in my house. But this is clearly them saying, we want to sin in particularly wicked ways toward your guests. 
Lot has the ridiculous response of saying, don't do it to them, do it to my daughters instead. Lot has absorbed the attitudes and the perspectives of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was an unbridled lust that said, I can behave as a husband and wife would in marriage with any person that I wish to do that with. I don't have to be married to them. It doesn't have to be a man with a woman. It can be a man with a man. It could, although the passage doesn't say this, theoretically be a woman with a woman. It potentially could have included things that people did, gross immorality with animals and with objects and with all of other sorts of things because these are things that God clearly condemns in the law later and things which characterize the people of Canaan. And if you're feeling uncomfortable right now, this passage, I think, is designed to make us feel uncomfortable and to see the horror of sin, to be reminded of the fact that if Lot had permitted these men to act out their lustfulness toward his guests, which he did not know at the time were angels, they too would have become victims like others in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the people who today say, well, but these sorts of things can go on in the context of loving relationships, ignore the fact that there is much mistreatment and taking advantage of and selfishness that goes on in these sorts of relationships, which can also be true of relationships between men and women, but that doesn't mean that this is okay just because something bad happens in that context. So what was their sin? Any desire that I want to fulfill, I can fulfill, and I don't care if God has said that it's bad, and I don't care if the person says no, and any of those sorts of things. And God says this is wrong, and the outcry of these victims has come to me, and there is going to be punishment. The blindness with which the men are struck is often associated with God's judgment or with God's at least deliverance of his people in various other passages. For example, uh, there's an instance in which Elisha is in a city and people are trying to attack the city and Elisha strikes the men with blindness so that they can't attack the city. Paul is struck with blindness on the road to Damascus as a temporary sign of God's arresting his attention. Paul speaks against um, Elymas, Bar-Jesus, the Jewish magician who is trying to get the, the ruler of a particular city to stop listening to the gospel. And Paul says, your sight will be taken away from you for a time. Blindness is not always associated with punishment because there's a man who's born blind and Jesus says he didn't sin, his parents didn't sin. But in many cases in scripture, blindness is associated both with judgment and with God's delivering his people. These people are so wrapped up in their sinful desires that even though they are struck with blindness, they're wandering around outside Lot's house trying to find the door so that they can break it down and behave in wicked ways toward not only now Lot's guests, but his entire family. You wouldn't let us do what, you, what we wanted with these people. Now we're going to do whatever we want with you and anyone who's connected with you, you stuck-up semi-righteous person who presumes to tell us what we can and can't do. Lot's plan of living successfully in Sodom is falling apart 
and it's going to get worse before we get to the end of the chapter. But God is going to spare Lot, despite his foolish choices, despite his having become accustomed to living in this place for the sake of Abraham and in connection with Abraham's request in chapter 18. So now comes the urge, or the, the urging by the angels of Lot and his family to get out of the city because God's judgment is coming. The two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Which I think is perhaps a testimony to how effective Lot's example had become to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Clearly, they were seeing a different side of him in his urging them not to act the way that they were acting. And clearly now, when he says, God is going to destroy the city, his sons-in-law are basically like, what God are you talking about? Maybe not those exact words, but that was the attitude, right? Judgment isn't coming. We don't need to leave. This is our home. Why would we get up and leave it? When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. So it was going to be five being spared. Now it's only going to be three. But he hesitated. Lot's heart is wrapped up in this place that he has made his home. He's not willing to leave it, even though he knows that if he stays here, he will die. So the men seized his hand, the hands of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters, four actually, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. In a little bit of a corrupted sense, there's a parallel between God's sparing of Noah, right? Go build the ark. You and your family will be delivered. Everyone else will be swept away in my judgment because the thoughts of their hearts are only evil continually. But unlike Noah, who readily obeyed God and was willing to follow God and all these sorts of things, Lot's hanging on. He doesn't want to leave. They have to drag him out of the city. Now they've said, here's where you need to go so you'll be safe. And he says, oh, it's too far. Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? What Lot is saying doesn't make any sense. If you knew that there was going to be an earthquake, and the center of the earthquake was going to be right here, and there's a place that's closer to the center of the earthquake, and a place that's further away, why would you say, if I go here, I will die, and if I go here, I'll be saved? He wanted to stay as close to the city as possible. Maybe he hoped that after the judgment was done, he was going to uh, be able to gather some of his wealth back up, right? And if he goes to the mountains, he's not going to have access to any of that, and, you know, there's, there's no chance. He's still scheming and trying to work out 
that his life may still be a success in the face of this disaster. And yet the angels grant his request. Verse 21, I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar, which means small. Lot says, here's a small town. He goes to the town that's going to be called small, and he waits there when the judgment comes. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Which raises the question for us, if the outcry had come before God, and some of the outcry was from the victims who were being sinned against, why then did they die along with those who were otherwise sinning? And the short answer would be that there are those who are actively sinning against other people. There are those who are the victims of that sin, but none of them will be spared apart from a relationship with God, which Lot had, and apparently none of the rest of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah had. Furthermore, um, there are also cases, examples in the Bible, where it's almost like the, the ground, the earth, the creation itself is crying out because of the sin that's taking place on top of it. And whichever of these understandings we take away from this passage, God is still the righteous judge because he has punished the wickedness that was taking place. And four people are going to escape, right? Verse 26, But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. You say, what does that mean? Salt, we often think of positively in terms of seasoning. Sometimes we think of it negatively in terms of heart disease in our day, but that wouldn't have been the association in their day. It would have been associated with seasoning, and it would have been associated with barrenness. And I think that second sense is the sense in which we should understand this. I was looking, and there's a number of passages where it talks about the idea of a wilderness, where there's like salt flats, salt barrens, salt pits. What happens when a region is too high in salt? Plants won't grow and animals won't survive for the most part. She loved the city, looked back, and was caught up in the judgment, and was likewise made part of the destruction of this region where there is no possibility of normal life, normal crops, all of those sorts of things. The last, uh, Abraham arose early in the morning, went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. People argue about what specifically the fire and brimstone is. The point of this passage is not to provide a scientific explanation of the forces by which God brought it about. The point of this passage is to say God wiped out the life in that spot. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, which he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Why did God spare Lot? Because of Abraham and his intercession. Why did God punish Sodom and Gomorrah? Because of their great wickedness which anticipated 
the judgment that was going to fall on the rest of the land of Canaan when the Israelites came back after God had delivered them out of the land of Egypt. And it also, I think, anticipates God's judgment on other people throughout history who do not believe in him and who live in various kinds of sin. We're going to look at that in the, pa in the passage that we'll look at in Jude tonight. Jude actually talks about God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah as one of the examples of the certainty of God's judgment on all those who do not believe, who love sin and so forth, particularly in the context of false teachers. We'll look more about that tonight. But as we conclude the story, which again concludes on a discouraging note, Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Where does Lot end up? place where God told him to go in the first place. Because he sees God's judgment, I think he's fearful that it might happen again. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's no possibility of us having a husband. Let us make our father get drunk, and then we can have children, is essentially the sense of what the words are saying here. So they got him drunk, and then the first daughter had a baby through her father. The second one does the same thing. She had a baby through her father. This is wrong. There should not be this sort of relationship like you would have between a husband and a wife, between a parent and a child, or between a brother and a sister at this present age. There, were, there was an exception to the brother and sister thing early on in the history of the earth because there was only a certain amount of people in the world, right? And so Cain's wife would have been one of the daughters of Adam and Eve. But both for medical reasons and for the principle that we find in the law of Moses and for legal reasons in our society today, a brother and a sister can't get married and have a family. Paul condemns a man who was having a marriage kind of relationship with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5, so that's also condemned as wrong in the New Testament. And the reason that this takes place is that Lot's daughters have also adopted the attitudes of the city in which they grew up. Lot has not been successful in teaching them what it means to follow God, and their scheme is, we want to have children, and we're living in a cave, nobody's going to ever find us out here, so we're going to sin in this way with our father. Now, Lot was an unwilling participant in this sin from the perspective that he got drunk. The drunkenness was a sin, but he didn't entirely know what was going on. And so the same attitude of taking advantage of someone in terms of their body that we saw in chapter 19, for which the city of Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, is also seen in this sinful act by Lot's daughters. And what was the result of that? They had two children. One of them they named son of the father, and the other one they named son of my people. And so even in the names that they gave to these people was a reminder of the sin that they had committed. And what happened with these two tribes? They became enemies of the people of Israel, they became perpetrators of immorality and of all sorts of horrible idolatry. 
from the people of Moab, we have the story of Balaam. Turn away after these false gods, forsake the God of Israel. Judgment falls on the people of Israel later when they participate with this tribe in their immorality. From the tribe of Ammon, we have the god Molech, where they would take babies and burn them on an altar as an offering to their god. And so this immorality, this murder and wickedness, was the result of the final shame of Lot's life. We don't see Lot mentioned anymore. What should we walk away with from this chapter? We should walk away with a sober reminder of the realities of sin. If you choose not to believe in God, sin doesn't just stop with cheating a little bit on things to get better advantage for yourself and lying a little bit here and there so that you can get ahead at your job and all those sorts of things. Sin naturally progresses worse and worse, more and more shameful, more and more horrific. No, it, it does. If you say, I don't believe God, it's not too many steps from I don't believe God to if I don't want a baby, let's just throw it in the dumpster behind the hospital. It's not too many steps for, you know what, old people cost a lot of money, let's just get rid of them too. It's not too many steps to, you know what, God says this is the way marriage is supposed to be, but I can be married to a man or a woman or 15 people or my dog or my horse or whatever else. You say, well, that, doesn't, that is the natural progression of sin. And that sin is not unique to people who have chosen to disbelieve God. You and I can be tempted to all sorts of sins as well. But what's the hope that's offered? The only thing that spared Lot was Abraham's intercession before God. The only thing that spares us is a relationship with Jesus Christ and his intercession before God the Father. And so, if anything, the horrificness of the sin that's described in this chapter ought to drive us to make certain that we know Jesus and that he is interceding before us, because otherwise God's wrath abides on us, and sooner or later we're going to land where Sodom and Gomorrah was, which is under God's wrath, his judgment being carried out against us. So do you know God? Is Jesus the one interceding for you? And if you know God and Jesus is interceding for you, do you have compassion to intercede for other people? Because in our statement of faith, we talk about the fact that sin is by nature, from Adam and Eve, by choice, we willingly do it, and a kind of bondage. We're enslaved to sin. And so, yes, your neighbor, your coworker, your family member, whoever it is that lives in different kinds of sins and and is not trusting in God, is doing so willingly, but they're also enslaved to that sin. And they need God's power to deliver them from that sin, to bring them into a right relationship with Him. So do you intercede for them on their behalf? Lot didn't really deserve anything from Abraham. He brought difficulty to Abraham in a variety of instances. 
He took the best land, and Abraham went into the wilderness. He got himself in trouble. Abraham had to come help him. He's about to be killed. Abraham has to intercede before, for him before God. But Abraham did it because he was demonstrating the righteousness that God wanted him to demonstrate. And if we want to be righteous and follow in the same sort of faith as Abraham and honor God by loving our neighbors ourselves, we also need to intercede for those who are in all sorts of sinful circumstances which may be terrible and horrific and in no way can we say what they're doing is okay. But we do have to say they need Jesus. And the last application would be this. If you know Jesus, you can't live this way. Ephesians, Galatians, other passages say, you were like this, this did characterize your life, you were slaves to sin, now you have new life, you're slaves to righteousness, here's the fruit of the Spirit that your life is supposed to look like. Does your life look like the fruit of the Spirit? Be putting off these sorts of attitudes. You say, well, well, Christians wouldn't think this way. When we start to say Christians wouldn't do blank, we get ourselves into a circumstance in which there are churches where people are um, abused and lied to and stolen from and all these other sorts of things because people are like, it's a church. These sorts of things can't happen there. Sin is pervasive, sin is dangerous, sin is deadly. We ought to watch out for it in our own hearts. We ought to intercede for those who are caught up in it. We ought to come to hate it instead of thinking it's no big deal. We need to learn from the soberness of this passage that sin is real, that there's a God to whom we can intercede for sinners, including ourselves. And God is a righteous judge, which means he will both deal with sin, but he's also a merciful judge, which means many times he spares it for a long period of time, or he spares those around someone like us who are doing his work. Do you believe that God is a righteous judge? Do you see the example of intercession that Abraham set out? Do you intercede for those who are sinners? Have you turned from your own sin? Do you continue to turn from your own sin? All of these things, I think, are reminders that ought to be applications of this passage in our hearts and lives. Let's pray. Lord, this is a long passage, a sobering passage, a difficult passage. As we shudder to think what the people in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah were going through, it is easy for us in self-righteousness to say, I would never be like them, and I will look down on them, and all those sorts of things. And there are people who are enslaved to the same kinds of sins around us today, in the places where we live, in the place where we gather here. Help us walk the difficult balance between recognizing your wrath against sin, your mercy to those who are sinners, our need to intercede on their behalf, your desire to save the lost, the fact that your judgment is coming. We, we set all these truths alongside each other, and we see the example of Christ. 
who did not show himself better than sinners by avoiding their presence and refusing to talk to them and mistreating them or anything like that. He never said what they were doing was okay. He commanded them to repent and turn away from their sin. Lord, give us wisdom that we might reach the lost that are caught up in these sins and others. Lord, help us to not adopt the attitudes of the world around us that says these things and others are okay. Lord, help us to see that worldliness is a lot more about what's going on in our heart than it is the things that are happening externally. When I love the world, I start to say what it's doing is okay. And that's not about wearing the same clothes that they do. It's not about necessarily um, their music, their um, all of these other sorts of things. There's been a, an attitude in our churches, Lord, sometimes that if we just sort of like isolated ourselves from the world around us, then we won't catch worldliness, but the worldliness is in our hearts. We start to think that sin is okay, like Lot thought that sin was okay. We start to rationalize making foolish choices because we think that we can maybe help somebody here or there. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna share the gospel with my friend, but I'm gonna be around them and maybe some of my Christianity will rub off on him. Lord, help us to be clear that we know you, that we follow you, that the difference in us is not external things, but the transformation that you have done in our hearts. And that affects external things or things that people can see or hear, like our words, like the attitudes of our faces, those sorts of things. Lord, help us to see our need to seek your help. our need to continually be putting off sin, our need to see the bondage of sin and the horrific effects that it has in the lives of people around us and point them to Christ because he is the only hope for deliverance from these things. Lord, help us not to be self-righteous. Help us not to be hypocritical. Help us not to throw off all restraint and abandon what is right either. But Lord, I think far too often we, we err on the side of thinking that we're better than people because of something in us instead of because of the work that you have done in our lives through Jesus. Lord, we pray that the lessons of this passage will continue to echo in our hearts and minds this week as we look at similar themes tonight that we'll see the connection between sin and unbelief. Lord, help us to just have wisdom and to learn from your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.